You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. For the second time now in two weeks, I have had someone that didn't know who I was. (laughs) And this person asked if I was Robert Killian. Oh, well, you both, you both are bald. So. And Caucasian. But this one was confusing because usually it's at a race. Someone yeah. will say, hey, good job, Killian. Like, no problem, man. Do it for the troops. But this time they were referred to me. They received an email from Bracken Crocker. And then they logged in to a Zoom call hosted by Bracken Crocker and asked if I was Robert Killian. Oh, that's amazing. Did they seem disappointed? The attention to detail would be a little a little bit off. Yeah, it's not an yeah. eagle thing. I don't care if you don't know who I am. I haven't done anything relevant lately, but... Join the club. <laughs> and we would and I would say you are you are maybe you have done something a little bit relevant recently, Amelia. You can't just brush what you recently did off, now can you? Oh, oh at Biggs? Yes. Well, at yeah. Biggs. Well, so it's easy to brush off Biggs because it's the only race where you can be like, I only ran 137 miles because like <laughs> the winner runs over double that. Like, and so it's like, it's very something you're like, yeah, that's cool. But somebody else ran like twice as many hours as me. So it doesn't seem as cool anymore. But I was talking with my parents about the race because they're interested. I'm sure that uh, you remember they were probably at your first Spartan race or your second. (laughs) Probably. So they remember you from way back and they're interested with your story. And they were, we were live tracking and all that good stuff. But it, it was trying to explain to them the concept of what a backyard ultra is versus a normal ultra. And they were, they were interested with the idea that every single person DNFs mm-hmm. and quits like taking well, second place. For one. Yeah. You, you quit into second place. No mm-hmm. one actually finishes on the podium. You quit and DNF onto nothing. Yes. Yeah. It's a very oh, strange yeah. style of race. You, you definitely have to, I think that's the the beauty of it in some ways is that you have to check your ego. You can't have any ego going into a race like that because you know that there's only going to be one person who says that they're the winner. And technically, even though Courtney DeWalter like won in the U S she didn't win overall. So she's still DNF'd, you know? Um, so it is just one of those things that you, you really have to know what your motivations are doing when you go into it. <laughs> you, know what, you know what I want to know about that race yeah. is like, how messy is it for everybody when they decide they have to pull the plug? I just have to imagine it's always like a messy like moment because you're choosing to like succumb to the situation or is it like a nice moment when you're like, I'm out. What is you it know- like? Well, uh, both years for me have been messy just because I'm a crier. So I cry my way to a DNF. Um, Like I'm always, I cried both years at the end because it was just like you reach that point where you know, like just physically, it's just not going to happen anymore. I think probably the cleaner way to go out is just getting timed out. Um, So that happened, happened to Maggie this year is that her calf totally locked up and she couldn't physically actually even run. 4.16 4.16 miles in an hour. So she came in over the time cut off. So that's a little bit cleaner than being like, like I then just like, cause I went out for a loop and then had to like lay down on the ground cause I was super dizzy. 
and then like 15 minutes passed by and I realized that there was no way that I was going to make it. So I just turned around and came back. So, you know, it is, it is very, it is interesting to watch though, when people finally decide like enough is enough. So. I know you, you talked that you had a love for the post competition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For the staying around and watching all the rest of the stories and the accomplishments and the failures. But do you have a love for that race itself? Is this something you want to do? Or is it just the experience? Mm, you know, I'll be honest. I think this year I kind of came to a realization that it's never going to be a format that I excel at um, because to win these races, you need to have complete disregard for your body. Like you need to mentally just be in it and be like, I don't care what's going on. I am going to push to this in. I think because of my background with injury and because of like been, being on the sidelines for so long, I just don't know if I have that in me anymore. And that's kind of like a hard, a bitter pill to swallow to be like, no, I'd rather like call it when I'm still kind of in one piece. So then like, you know, I'm not out on the sidelines for six months types of things, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but I do love the mental aspect to it. I also think I realized the reason that I would, beyond just that kind of fear, the other reason that I wouldn't don't excel at this type of race is that you need to be a stone cold killer through it. Like you cannot have any emotions like watching Courtney, Courtney and Maggie and I shared a tent watching her come in and out. Like she, she was happy at times. If she was hurting, you would never see it. Like it was just like, it just so even keel. I, on the other hand, and like, and just like up and down and all over the place. And I'm happy and I'm singing and then I'm crying. And I just don't think it, that works very well for this kind of race. <laughs> But that's how I am. So. Every photo we saw, I saw you were big and smiley. So yeah, well, big and smiley until like the wheels came off super quickly, and then all of a sudden I was like a crying like pile. And if I had thirty minutes, like in a regular ultra, where you could stop for as long as you needed, I could compose myself and get back out there. I mean, I've cried during every world's toughest mutter. I have cried. I've there's been times where I've I've literally have. I've broken down during every 24 hour race, but you can get back going on your own time frame. The problem with the backyard is you're always on somebody else's clock. So there's no, you have to pull it together into their time frame, which is why I think it's such an intriguing kind of race because everybody says, oh, 4.16 miles an hour, that's nothing. And I'm like, well, yeah, but like when things start to go wrong later and later, you have to be able to triage in a very short period of time. And if you can't do that well, then you're at a, you're done. That's really interesting. Yeah. Oftentimes when we talk with people about ultras and we don't mm -hmm. have near the experience in ultras that you do, but the, the idea is that you, you enjoy the highs and you ride out the lows because everything will turn around. If you're mm -hmm. feeling great, it's going to get bad eventually, but when it gets really bad, it'll come back around eventually. But I guess in backyard lap-based ultras, you don't have time to ride out the lows. You have to eradicate them immediately. And the highs are great, but yeah, you can't really absorb a 20-minute bad patch because pit time might be 11 minutes. Right, exactly. And especially in the way the format with lap, when we're in the day loops in his backyard, it's technical enough that to run under a 50-minute loop is really hard to do just because you're hopping over things and like it's just it's not a fast loop it's twisty and windy um and so during the day if things go wrong you have maybe eight or nine minutes tops mm. to triage something 
um, and to get back out there. Um, and so I think that that it is becomes very like micromanaging and staying on top of problems as they arise. So how many, um, for, for the listeners, so how long of a time period between start and 137 miles for you was that? That was 34 hours. And how many minutes, if any, of sleep, I imagine, uh, how much sleep is any in there? No, I didn't sleep at all. And I, and I didn't sleep at all for the next two days, which did not help my recovery. So <laughs> you were just probably out of whack, huh? Oh, I was so out of whack. I was very, very in a very tough place for the next like two weeks while I tried to catch up um, with sleep and whatnot. But I mean, most people try to sleep. Um, at, at, like some people try and sleep the first night. It's just really hard because you do have like five or six minutes. You need to just power through that micro nap though. And I mean, the second night people that make it once they're into like the 36 hour, 40 hour range, you see everybody trying to sleep for at least five, six minutes uh, during the night loops. Um, and the people that can do that are the ones that do well. So, you know, like uh, Carl, who's from Belgium, who won it overall, um, you know, he's the record holder on the Appalachian Trail and the Pacific Crest Trail. Um, so he he's very good at these like long distance things and then like taking short little naps. Um, so I have not perfected that ever. <laughs> I just can't imagine you would feel well after waking up five minutes after falling asleep when you're so sleep deprived already. I feel like that would yeah. do me more of a detriment, but I don't, I've never done it. So. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible to, I mean, I think you just kind of turn into a walking zombie at some point, literally. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so we, uh, I want, I want to get people up to speed on current day and then we want to take like a, a jog back down memory lane and understand where like Amelia came from, how you got to where you are and what your big goals and plans and dreams all are. Um, but I, I, if I'm not mistaken, you moved to Colorado, bought a house mm -hmm. and yeah. you have a dog now. I do. The dog is the most recent addition. If I have to like cut, she just got spayed yesterday. So she's kind of drugged up and moping around somewhere. Um, but <laughs> yeah, she's so certain. She's certain. So the, yeah, actually from where I was at this point last year, I have moved states, bought a house, bought a new car, and now have a dog. So I've, and you know, all amidst the global pandemic and us not racing. So yeah, life has been pretty, um, there's been a lot of change. A lot of change. <laughs> you in a Subaru now? Oh, I clearly am in a Subaru. Yes. I, I tried everything I could to do be to not be in a Subaru, but I just, I had to give in. I had to give in. I had to do it. Uh, Outback. Outback. And okay. maybe because the Outback, the, the sole reason is that the Outback is the only car that's long enough where I can fit my elliptigo in there. Um, ah. So it's, you can't even fit in the back of a truck bed. It's too big for that. So. What was the reason for the move? Um, you know, I think I had realized that, you know, I've been in the Bay Area for five years working for Apple, really love my job. I didn't want to leave it. Um, but I, when I went through recovery with the eating disorder and I went into treatment, what I realized is that it was so important to me to have a community, a group of people there, like physically present for me. Um, and I didn't have that in the Bay Area. I found community through racing. So I would every week I would travel and go to a race and those would be my people. But then I realized like that when you can't do that all the time or when that's not feasible, like I need to have people around me day to day and like have that in-person interaction. Um, so I kind of looked at where places were in the U.S. that 
had great running and then also had great people that I already had kind of built in community that I could move to. And clearly there are a lot of athletes in Colorado. There's a lot of OCR people. Um, and so it just seemed like the best fit for me. What specific area are you in now for the, finding that community? Uh, I am in Golden. So that's about, nice. it's about 20 minutes south of Boulder. Um, it, I like Boulder and all, like all of my friends are up in Boulder. Um, but I think I also, it is a very tough atmosphere sometimes because it is so athlete driven um, that I think I wanted like a little bit of separation. So we're building a bear community here in Golden. There's like a number of runners and some good crew here. Um, so it's nice. So does Bay Area rent get you Golden mortgage? Oh yeah. My mortgage, my, my mortgage here is cheaper than what I paid for. Oh, 600 square foot, one bed in San Jose. <laughs> and it's still pretty, it, and it's the Colorado is still a very expensive market to be honest, you know? Um, so yeah, Bay area is kind of ridiculous. So everything's dropping now because everyone's moving out. So I've never lived out there, but uh, is golden. Are you living above like six or 7,000 feet? I am right at 5,900. Okay. Cause doesn't golden get a little higher than that in some points? It does. So it like the, if you go up, um, I mean, kind of like up above the city, it's probably about 6,500 or so. Okay. Um, and then like, yeah, if you, you can go like, uh, riding up to like the top of lookout mountain, I think is around 7,000. Um, so yeah, we're a bit higher than Boulder here. So I like to hold that over their head as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are, are you no longer with Apple now? No, I am. I'm still with Apple, just working okay. full time, full time remote. Um, the idea, was before before the pandemic, they approved the move. And the idea was that I would be there one week a month. So I'd kind of be 75% here and 25% there. And now everyone is remote indefinitely. So who knows? At some point, I'd like to go back and at least like get the stuff from my office. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the I, eventually I'll be traveling back and you didn't even grab your office supplies. You were just gone. Uh, you know, they pretty much like shut down the office. And then it was like, okay, now, now you're gone. And then I moved. Wow. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> what is the one thing you want out of that office that you left that you miss? Is there one oh. thing in there? Well, yeah, no, actually, this is really dumb. It's, uh, it's a, it's a few mobility tools <laughs> up in there that I want. <laughs> I have a few like Graston tools that, um, that would be super handy. I thought about like asking one of my coworkers if they could go back in the office and then mail them to me. So <laughs> Clearly, it's nothing work related that's in there. But I'm also sure there's like half eaten like boxes of food around there. And yeah, it's pretty bad. So knowing the things that you generally eat, I'm sure it, it'll last a while. Uh, yeah, that's true. Pop tarts will be they'll be there till you know, the end of time. <laughs> so Amelia, we um, I know you've done a bunch of podcasts. I'm sure you probably podcasted yeah. out by this point. But we appreciate you joining us today. Um, what we like to do here, I don't know if you've listened, but we kind of want to like go back in time to like the start of who you are and then kind of walk us through everything because a lot of our listeners are of like the new era, you know, yeah. and they don't know the real OGs, the real like pioneers of this sport. Really, they know Amelia Boone's a big deal and they know you're super awesome and reflective and you're a great follow on social media, but I don't think they all understand like why. So <laughs> that's why I want to go back to the beginning, to be honest. We'll go back to the Lost Tribe of 2012 Ultra Beasts, right? Oh no, Crack no, it. we're talking, we're 
we're, we're talking, we're talking diapers. Became an athlete. Oh, diapers. Oh, when I became an athlete. Oh yeah. man. I mean, but yeah, that was that was unfortunate. But I wasn't part of that. I benefited from that. Oh, that's right. You weren't part of Lost Tribe. Neither was I. Okay. I, I also the, I did the beast that day. I also benefited from that. Yes. No, but wasn't that the year that both were you did two loops for the Correct. But yes. since we were out ahead of that, we didn't miss that turn. We didn't miss it. That's true. All right. Well, we'll go even further back uh to diapers, Amelia. Uh, no, I mean, I was a very, this is a weird story for me because I actually normally have always glossed over it in podcasts in the past um, because it's like there was a big hole in my life that I wasn't talking about. Um, and so, you know, I was a very active kid growing up. I didn't understand why people would run for fun. I thought that running was something you did like to chase after a soccer ball or to get around the bases in softball. Um, and so I played a lot of sports and I was actually really good at everything from a young age. I was playing, you know, competitive um, soccer and softball and all the traveling teams and basketball. My grandma forced me to learn how to play golf and I hated it, but I was good at it. Um, and uh, so, you know, I played sports and in high school and like made varsity freshman year was doing really well. Then I developed an eating disorder and, you know, got very, very sick and I was hospitalized and I, freshman year? uh, sophomore year, sophomore it was beginning year. my sophomore year of high school. And so, uh, I became very medically unstable and I spent six weeks in the hospital, um, from Thanksgiving to like Christmas and new year. Um, and so I, I stopped, I, couldn't play sports anymore. And that was very much at the time um, when they were treating eating disorders that the idea was that any type of exercise, any type of activity was a no-go. Like you just can't do it because it feeds, it feeds the disorder, um, which understandably I was also very medically unstable. Um, so eventually I did start playing again. I think they let me play softball back in like my, when I went back my junior and senior year. Um, but I think- When you say you went back, you were out yeah. of school at that time? I was out. No, I was I was only out of school for the amount of time that I was hospitalized. So I was out of school for half, half of my sophomore year, pretty much. Still a lot. It's still a lot. Oh, yeah. It was terrifying. And the thing, at that time, they also thought that anybody with an eating disorder, it was a very bad idea for them to see friends because they thought that other teenagers would feed your eating disorder because it was like, caused by people being mean to you, which is not the cause at all. You know, no one, no one ever like called me fat. That was not why I developed an eating disorder. Uh, but so yeah, for like two months, I wasn't allowed to see any of my friends. I was in a hospital bed by myself. Um, it's probably the worst was, thing for somebody at that age, isn't it? Oh, it's awful. So you're a 15 year old girl. Yeah. So I, yeah, I was, I, yeah, I was 16 at the time and I was totally, the only people that I could see were me were my parents and my priest. Uh, and so it was just like, they didn't even let my sister see me for a long time. Um, and so, and I was literally, I was confined to a bed. Uh, they like, like dark ages stuff. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I remember them like bringing me, I had, they brought me a bedpan. I wasn't allowed to shower for like three or four weeks. Um, at the, and it's funny now. Cause I like look back and laugh about it, but I don't think I, appreciated how traumatic it was at the time as a 16 year old kid, like not figuring out. And I remember I have journals actually from them. And I remember writing, they, like writing in the journals. My biggest fear was that I was going to fail my class <laughs> clearly because I was also like a straight A student. Um, but yeah, I mean, it definitely was 
was something that, uh, you know, most kids that age don't go through. Um, but, uh, you know, I, it, it was, I don't think they do that to teenagers anymore. I don't think that that's the really type not. of treatment. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. What was the rationale on removal of bathing? Uh, oh, I was too unstable medically to get out of bed. Okay. So, I mean, I was just at a very, I don't, I don't talk about weights. I don't talk about stuff like that um, in general, because I think that unfortunately for better or worse, people with eating disorders throw those around almost like a badge of courage. Like if I got down to a certain waist, I was the best anorexic ever. Um, mm. But I was in a very compromised state. Okay. Um, the first night that I was in the hospital, my heart stopped. Um, and so like, it was just, it was a very scary time. Um, wow. and so I think the, the rationale was just to not, if I would try and stand up, I would faint. Mm -hmm. So the rationale was to keep me in bed. I know this is super raw for you yeah. and I do appreciate you opening up and you would not, I'm, I guess you would believe because of all people you would know now, the amount of people that reach out after episodes like this, that this personally touches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's something that I think I, I, what I've realized is that so many people have experience with this in different degrees and different forms and in different severities, but it's just not talked about enough, or at least, at least from until now, I feel like in the past few years, more and more people are talking about mental health issues and especially eating disorders and involving athletes. But, you know, for my entire life, it was just something that I wanted to try and forget happened, you know, right. and that I wanted to think was not part of me, you know, and I almost in some ways think that's maybe why I got into obstacle racing was that I could be like, I am the strong person and nothing, you know, I'm the super badass and nothing ever phases me. And like, I could do all these hard things, but knowing that underneath, like I, there were still all these things that I was struggling with, you know? So it almost felt like it was very real. I mean, I enjoyed it, but in some ways, like the persona that I built up around it never felt like me. Mm -hmm. Did you, did you feel like, like way back when this, when the eating disorder really, you know, came to a head when you were younger, do you feel like that was something you had to hide and couldn't even really talk through and help understand? Like, like when you went back to school, were you able to be like, yeah, you had to just skirt around what really was going on? Or did you have a support network then? You know, everyone knew that I was sick. Um, I don't think people really understood. I, I mean, I, everyone knew I was sick and in the hospital. I did get letters from people. I actually kept all the letters that like people wrote me. Um, but I don't think that it was something that I didn't really talk about until I, it was very awkward going back because kind of everybody knew, but not everybody knew. And you don't want to be labeled as the sick girl, I guess. That's like a very tough thing to, to feel, especially as a teenager. Um, I mean, hell, it's tough enough to feel that now as somebody in her mid-30s. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I, I almost did the opposite in that I wanted to prove to everybody that I was like an A plus in recovery that, cause I, you know, I was that overachiever and everything. So I said, okay, I'm going to recover and I'm going to do this so well. And I'm going to say, I am recovered. I am free of an eating disorder. Everybody look at me, congratulate me. And that's kind of what I did like my senior year of high school. And when I went to college, I remember as a freshman, I spoke to my sorority and I told everybody about how recovered I was and that you too, like, you know, just like built myself up. And then my sophomore year, I relapsed like even worse than I was in my, in high school. 
And um, it's just, which then makes it clearly worse because now you go out there and you tell everyone how recovered you are and you've just fallen back into everything again, so. Mm. And how did how did this all tie into, so I'm, I'm curious with this, like yeah. sport then, going back to like high school to college and all that. Yeah. You were only, you were a ball sport athlete. You had recovered from, at the time, or proclaimed to recover from the eating disorder. Were allowed to go back and play sports. Hadn't mm -hmm. touched endurance athletics yet. And then went to college as a non-athlete. Yeah, yeah. So I, when I was a freshman in high school, I was, I was working towards, I wanted to pitch in college. I was a pitcher in softball um, and I was pretty good. Uh, I don't, I mean, I probably wouldn't have made it into D1 at all, but um, it was something that I like considered a lot. Um, unfortunately, you know, like being, being hospitalized, being very medically compromised and being away from the sport for a year when you're growing and developing, I, when I tried to come back and play my junior and senior year, I just, I didn't have it anymore, you know? Um, I, they still let me, I was still on the varsity team, but I pretty much just rode the bench. I think I was a glorified cheerleader, uh, which is, is I mean, it's tough on the ego. That's super tough. Um, and I, so I didn't, I didn't go in as an athlete. Um, and I think that, you know, my exercise, any type of movement was severely restricted. Uh, they didn't want me. The idea was like, you, you can't be in, you can't be in recovery from eating disorder and also be an athlete um, because they would, the idea was just that it, exercise was a form of the eating disorder. So I didn't, you know, and, and I didn't play sports in college. Um, and for most of, most of college, I was too sick to play at all. Um, and I went to law school. And um, I mean, I had a treatment and a stint in residential treatment between college and law school as well. Um, and then I think I slowly started to get back. I was living in Seattle and living right around this like path around Green Lake there, which is just like, it's like a 2.8 mile loop. It seemed to me like it was 10 miles. That was my idea of a run. I was like, well, I'm going to run 10 miles. And then I'm like, oh, it's actually 2.8. I have family right there at Green Lake. Yeah. Oh, really? My sister yeah. lives there now. Yeah. Really? So she's right in the area. Yeah. yeah. I've run that path a few times. Yeah. But so I thought, you know, this is before GPS watches too. So I clearly thought it was just like the longest run ever. Um, but I think I, you know, I would run that a few times a week um, as I, after when I was in law school. So it was around 24, 25. Um, but were I didn't. You, were you breaking the rules in quotes by doing that at the time? <sighs> you know, I don't know. I, I don't think so. I had gotten to a point with my treatment team and where my weight and everything physically was stable that I think that they had kind of deemed me quote unquote recovered again. So I was kind of like free to do what I wanted. Um, but I was also very wary because I knew it could be a slippery slope. Um, it, it Exercise had never really been a super compulsive thing for me, but I figured that it could potentially go that way. Um, which is why, you know, when I, when I first, the first, I remember hearing about obstacle races. Um, and when this first started, so I was in Chicago by that point and, um, working at a law firm. And I remember somebody like talking about a tough, or I was talking about a warrior dash because to me, I was like, Oh, that's so long. And then this person I worked with is like, well, what about a tough mutter? And I was like, I don't think I can run 10 miles or however long it was. Um, 
But that appealed to me over a Spartan race because you weren't timed and there was no competitive aspect to it because I was very afraid that any type of competitive athletics could start to make me like spiral back into um, or just spiral back into an unhealthy mindset. And that's really why I think for the first year that I did obstacle racing, I tried, it was Tough Mudders. I did like go rucks. Um, I got into like the death race stuff because it wasn't like the competitive aspect of it, I suppose. Um, I was kind of scared of, of the entire time-drinked and judged ethos of Spartan. Clearly that didn't last and I fell into it. <laughs> was the death race, was that your catalyst of switching over into Spartan race? Yeah, I think it was because I ran World's Toughest Mudder in 2011 and somebody was like, you need to talk to this guy, Andy Weinberg, and go try this winter death race thing. And you took second, right, at that inaugural World's Toughest? World's Toughest yeah, World's Toughest, I took second. I, I mean, I want to say I was the second woman but there were only two women that finished. So I was also the last woman. Uh, oh, whatever. <laughs> I mean, but there were 13 people that finished out of, you know, 800 that lined up. So wow. uh, yeah. it was just carnage. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, I think that that's how I got introduced to the Spartan world through the death race. So I did everything backwards. I didn't do my first Spartan sprint until like 2013, which was two years after I had been doing this stuff. <laughs> and so you I was started like, with the death race. I started with the death race. Which yeah. is to date the longest Spartan offering. Yes. Yeah. And how started. long did it go? I guess first we yeah. have people that don't know what the Spartan death race is. I, I know. I know. And this is the hardest event to try and just describe too. If I try and just describe it, it's like, so you do like farm chores in Joe's backyard for as long as he says until the race is over. Um, no, I mean, it is, I always tell people it's, you know, it was a race created by Joe DeSena um, and Andy Weinberg at the time. And it was this idea that what keeps people going when they don't know when the race is going to finish. And so you almost didn't even know when it started. Sometimes you had like a vague idea of when you needed to be there, but then sometimes you'd wait around for hours and then it would start. Sometimes it would start immediately. And then you never knew what you were going to do. You always had a required gear list, you know, like 20 pounds of pennies. But what were you going to do with those pennies, you know, or like a loincloth and a needle? And you're like, what am I going to do with this? And you don't know. And so there were different tasks that were done at all times during the race. And I have to say for the first few years of the death races, they were genius tasks. Things like putting together a bicycle and carrying the bicycle around with you. As it became more popular the tasks became more like mundane because they couldn't do that cool stuff with smaller things. So it became like carry this rock up and down a mountain for 24 hours type of stuff. So, um, but I mean, they were, they were fun because I think that they, if anything, that was a race that was so mental because it was just like, what is the point? There is a zero point to this race. You finish it, you get an aquarium skull, a plastic aquarium skull. But it's just kind of finding that like inner, like I can do this and I am not going to quit type of um, ethos, which is very, as we all know, a very Spartan type of mentality. That race captured my fascination when it occurred. <laughs> yeah. And at the beginning, I thought I could win this. I could next year, I'm going to do it. I'm going to win it. And then I started reading people's recaps of it mm -hmm. and started really looking into what it truly meant. And I realized I am so lucky I didn't go out there because 
that's just not a race. It's a survival mm-hmm. competition. And there were some really cool tasks. One year there was one where you had something like a yolk with two buckets on it and you had to fill it with sand with a like a, a spoon or something and carry it up. And you had a weight that had to be in there. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't wait until you got to the top of the mountain. And if it was wrong, you had to come down and remedy it and then go back again. Like Things like that are just so intelligently designed to find out what you're willing to go through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're diabolical. Yeah. What did you have to do with the pennies? The pennies were like, it was like bartering for at certain points during the race, you could choose to give up your pennies to like potentially get an advantage for something, but you didn't know then if, but maybe you should hang on to your pennies because maybe there's a better advantage later on in the race. And there's also an advantage to giving up your pennies because $20 worth of pennies weighs a lot and you're carrying that all in your pack. And so it's just kind of like, well, do I give that up or do I hang on to these thinking that maybe later on that they'll help me, you know, or there are some times where like people would do things like he said, if you eat three raw onions, you can skip the next task. So there were people who would literally just choose to eat three raw onions to skip the next task that they didn't know what the next task was going to be. And the next task could literally be like sitting there coloring in a coloring book. So it could have been super simple, but you have to take the risk. Uh, so there was a lot of it that's uh, so genius. And if you like rules and if you like fairness, it was not the race for you. Um, I mean, David Megiddo learned the hard way, Uh, you know, if you want to know like what the rules are going on, I'm like, no, there's nothing fair about the death race. And that was why it was such a great metaphor for life. I think in a lot of ways, what was it last year? It was like, it was like, two people who had dropped out or said they had enough were allowed to come back in because they carried a refrigerator into Joe DeSantis house. He's like, you know what? Screw it. Just carry his refrigerator back. And people are like, are you kidding me? You're letting them back in for putting a refrigerator in your house. And he's like, yep. <laughs> yeah. There was one year I joined late um, and I had to carry his son, Jack up a mountain as my like punishment. But that was the most terrifying thing ever. Cause Jack was six at the time. So I was responsible for his child's well-being going up to the top of the mountain in the middle in the middle of the night. And to get a kid to hike up a top of the mountain in the middle of the night, even Joe's kid who like does burpees every day before he eats breakfast, it was still something, you know, it's like, but I don't want to. I was like, oh God, this is the worst ever. <laughs> so what were you doing at the time, training-wise or life-wise, that oh, allowed you to be successful at yeah. world's toughest mutter and then a death race, which was what, 30, 50, 60 hours, depending yeah. on the year? What were you doing that allowed you to step into the sport at that deep end of the pool? I would like to say tongue in cheek. It's just that pure luck and nobody else was doing it at the time. Um, but uh, no, I, after the first world stuff as mutter, I realized that I had zero upper body strength. And as much as I rag on CrossFit, I got very into CrossFit and I got very, very strong. Um, and, um, and so I think for me, it was, I, I was living in Chicago and it's Brackens, you know, and Kurt, you know, you both, you're both flatlanders and that there's, there's no mountains, you know, all I had were like overpasses and uh, parking ro- garage ramps. Um, so I did things like I worked on the 32nd floor of a building and I would put bricks in my backpack and I would walk up 
to my, my office every day as instead of taking the elevator. Um, I really got into just this, like, I got into that Spartan mentality. I got into that go rock mentality, that everything that like every day was training day type of thing. And, and I think that works for a lot of people and it worked for me. It did, you know? Um, and I got, I think I got very strong and I think that doing the death races um, and also World Stuff's Mutter actually really helped with the mental aspect of it. So then when I went to go do run like a, a super Spartan, that was eight miles. I was like, I got this in the bag, you know, because at least nothing mentally was going to shake me um, because mm -hmm. I had had so much uncertainty in my types of training and racing beforehand. I want to know um, between that two and a half mile jog around Green Lake. <laughs> so uh, that was like 2007 or 2008, you said? So, uh, yeah. yeah, we, had like yeah. A four, we had like a four year gap before you found this, like any of these sports. Like, yeah. what, were, what were you doing in that four years leading up to all of this, just to make sure we don't get ahead of ourselves? What was that time? Yeah. What were you doing then? Yeah. Oh, I mean, so, so in law school, when did I graduate from law school? 2009. Yeah. Um, so in law school, I mean, I think that. I, I didn't exercise at all. There was nothing my first year there because I was very still like in recovery um, from eating disorder. I'd come off another stint of treatment. Um, and then my friend on to this day, I think she quoted an article. She referred to me as the elliptical queen uh, because I would like study on the elliptical and just like hammer on that for like an hour a day in like my second and third year of law school. Um, but not like... It was like an hour a day, a few times a week. I did no strength training. I did nothing. I didn't lift weights. I just thought that I needed to move my body to stay in shape and to be healthy because that's what you're supposed to do. Um, and I think when I got to Chicago, I think I, I got to a gym there um, and it was in a CrossFit gym at the time, but I just, I found a group of friends there. I started to do some more like strength-based stuff. Um, I started to run a little bit more. Um, I had an idea in my head I was going to run the Chicago Marathon, uh, which I signed up for twice and then never ran it either year because it was always like the week after Spartan Race World Championships. Um, but um, so I, I think it like it was never really intentional. I just started slowly kind of liking running and kind of doing more and getting a little bit into strength. Um, but I never trained with a purpose for anything until I ran that first Tough Mudder. And I remember I ran a half marathon in Kenosha um, leading up to that Tough Mudder because I was like, I just need to know that I can run 13 miles without stopping. Like that, mm -hmm. was, that, was, all, that was all I needed to know. Um, and uh, to this day, that's the only road race I've ever run, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, people like, people like, what's your half marathon time? And I was like, well, <laughs> 2011, I ran a half marathon in Kenosha, Wisconsin off of zero training. And I ran like a 132, Whoa. Um, which I mean, now I'm, I don't, I'm now I'm like, okay, that's not too bad. Like, I mean, it's not great, but it's like decently respectable. It's not so, slow. Uh, no, no. So I think I've always had, what I think I've realized and is that I've always had an engine. I've just had an engine. And I think maybe that comes from playing so many sports growing up. And so just the aerobic capacity has always been there. But as anybody who followed my Spartan race career knows that the um, grip strength and upper body and technical skills capacity never was like always my downfall, you know? Um, so like the engine was there is just the working on the fine skills was always the hard part for me. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you really did lay a foundation. I mean, it, I, I just, I, I imagined you weren't doing like three or four years of nothing and then showed up at a tough mutter and then a death race and did all right. Like, obviously, <laughs> you didn't know it, but you were at least doing something to build some sort of yeah. new, new baseline I, fitness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I was in the gym, you know, maybe like four to five days a week, but I was like doing what I, you know, I thought it would be like, okay, 45 minutes on the elliptical and then we'll like do a few push ups and maybe take a strength class here and there. But it was very much just kind of like a, you do this because like, you know, the people tell you to exercise for 30 minutes a day type of thing, not like a, I have a purpose and I want to dominate the world. This, this Amelia who's super afraid of competition and being judged based on performance <laughs> goes and does these things now. So now you finally dipped your toes in the water. Clearly at some point you took this giant leap of faith and were like, oh crap, I might want to compete. Like, what did that look like? Yeah, I think I just, I, I, I think at some point I had, I came to this realization that I want to compete. I don't know if I'm going to be any good at it, but let's just try. And I, I think like so many people, I'm very scared of failure, you know? And um, I think what actually maybe in hindsight hindered me and everything with Spartan is that I never actually... And this may be something that people think, oh, woe is you, why cry me a river? But I never actually had to like fight my way to the top. I came in and I was immediately winning and I was like immediately at the top. And so I was like, wow, winning is fun. Winning is great. I love this. Um, and that, and so that's where I kind of like, then was like, okay, let's keep competing because winning is great. Um, which unfortunately then sets you up later than what happens when you stop winning and do you still love it? And, you know, and I had to go through that process as well. So, so that, that first world title you won, mm-hmm. was that like, this is my validation for like, I have arrived as this person who is impervious or was, were you still feeling like I have this exterior shell, but I know deep down this isn't a finished product yet. Yeah, I kept thinking it was just, I think for me, I almost had a bit of imposter syndrome going on. Is that like being like, well, I don't, I don't, I remember when I crossed the finish line at at Spartan Race World Championships and I won and I was like, okay, you know, like I, it it didn't feel real to me. Um, And I also, at that time, I remember, uh, you know, and then I start, I remember like I got an offer for to be sponsored by Reebok and stuff like that. And I remember my boyfriend at the time being like, this could lead you down a very scary road that you don't want to go down because of like the pressure that's added and it could make the sport really hard for you. And I was like, mm, yeah, maybe, but this is really cool. Like I'm going to be a sponsored athlete at, you know, the age of 30 and that never happens, you know? Um, so I think that I also like, I loved what I was doing. I really, at that point, was still in the very grips of like, this sport is amazing and it's super cool and I love it. And I wasn't disillusioned with it at all. And so I just decided to jump in full, you know, both feet in and go for it. Um, You know, not in the way it was still like, keep your day job, but also just be like, no, I want to compete and I want to do this. So, yeah. Now, when you, you won that first world title, you're right. The sport isn't what it is. Yes. You know, we, we stepped into a sport that was not fully formed. It was mm-hmm. very much 
its infancy, but you were still performing at a very high level. There were still high level athletes in it. You had Cloud, you had, you know, Jenny Tobin, you had, um, I'm going to blank on a lot of the other, uh, Rosemary <laughs> Jari, you know, different yeah, names. Yeah, way back in the day, yeah. High level in other sports mm-hmm. or in the mountains and you were beating these women. And so despite the not having any depth of field, the top was relatively strong. And yeah, you were living in Chicago, still not running the way these other women were running. So what were, what were you doing? Why were you successful? Yeah. So I ran maybe in Chicago until probably about 2013, 20, probably 2014. I didn't run more than like 15 or 20 miles a week. My training was I would get up first thing. I would get up about 4 a.m. I would trudge through the snow uh, to the like the equivalent of the 24 hour fitness there or whatever. Um, and I actually, the step mill, I did a lot of step mill. So it was cardio. It was like 45 minutes on the step mill. And then I would go and I, and then I would go to across the street to the CrossFit gym and I would do the CrossFit wad for the day. And then I would shower and go to work and do my thing as an attorney and then like do that the next day. So I was actually very low volume. You know, I didn't, I didn't run, you know, I would run like as part of CrossFit workouts. Um, I occasionally would run a few miles on the treadmill. Like if I had a super late night at work and I needed kind of a break. Um, but uh, honestly, like, I, I don't know a part of me now. I, it's so funny. Cause now I'm like, I look back at all my success then compared to like now when I run or like when, when I tried to run, you know, 50, 60 miles a week and do all of that and, and like being like, but I'm not as, but I was way more successful back in the day doing very little volume. So what is, what is this saying to me? You well, know? you know, showing up fresh, <laughs> fresh and healthy is much better than showing up tired and injured. And I think yeah. there, there's a lot to that. Were you doing the step mill because you knew you needed to prepare yourself to climb? Was that your mm-hmm. option or was that just like your preferred exercise method? It, it was very much like I, it was the one thing that I, like I hated an elliptical, um, you know, and there were no mountains. It was for me the best way that I could mimic climbing, even though it's not the same, but in very, very steep races, like the death march at Killington, like it, it, it is as aside from the calf issue, you're not really using your calves like you would. It's about as close as you can get for building strength. And I was an excellent power hiker. I could power hike like none other. And that still is the reason I think that I did so well in so many of those like mountain Spartan races is just having that power hiking gear that others didn't. You know, I've used you for years when I no. talk with other athletes or with clients uh, who are flatlanders. Now I say Amelia Boone won world titles living in Chicago doing skyscrapers and stair mill. Mm-hmm. And, and we're not talking the stair master that goes up and down. We're talking right. the stair mill comes out of the machine at you like a treadmill. So it's a real step. And so I always say like, hey, if, if it's good enough for her, I think we can get by on it. So you, yeah. unbeknownst to you, a lot of people have benefited from your your stairs. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny now I actually kind of, the one thing with all these shutdowns right now and like, you know, not, I haven't gone back to a gym, but I do miss my step mill for some reason. I actually kind of really like it. <laughs> I bought one last year. Really? Yeah. When I was coming, when my knees got yeah. bad, I yeah. got one. And because I thought it would carry over to stadiums. Yeah. And uh, I just sold it last month. <laughs> oh, why? Yeah, why? Well, because we bought a camper and we needed space in the garage. But it's about a four thousand dollar machine refurbished, yeah, yeah. and yeah, I got it for four hundred dollars. 
Wow. There was an Anytime Fitness who had bought all new equipment yeah. and it was sitting outside and it was starting to snow and they just needed someone to take it. And it was too big and heavy. It was like 500 yeah. pounds and 84 inches off the ground. And I rented a U-Haul and I went over there and I picked it up. Uh, but That's I wasn't using it enough to justify the space it took up. And yeah. because it was worth so much, you know, I could sell it for a decent amount without mm -hmm. ripping them off and they'd mm -hmm. still get a great deal. And I cleared a lot on it. So I sold it. That's incredible. I mean, yeah, I, I've, well, I've thought about that. I regret it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I mean, if I had room, I'm staring now in my living room in which I have a ski erg and an assault bike. Um, but I don't think my ceilings are high enough. For That's us the thing. I had to have it in our garage because we had yeah. we have like twelve foot ceilings in our garage. Right. Yeah. I mean, my my. So here's the thing: is that and and maybe people think this now about OCR as well, but like. I've always said, I don't think you need to run that much to be successful at OCR. I think the reason, I mean, if you're doing the ultra beasts and things like that, yeah, but you, there is a fair amount of running. You have to be able to run. But for me, I think the thing that actually really helped was the super high intensity workouts that you would get in something like CrossFit and being able to transition and then bring your heart rate back down and then be able to spike it again and then be able to bring it back down. I actually think that by getting into longer distance running and by getting into the ultras, I have completely obliterated any shot that I have in any type being a competitive OCR athlete. I just think that I've lost any type of fast, not that I've ever had fast switched muscles, but I, you know, that's just my, that's my theory. <laughs> well, you're probably good enough to change training styles again and adapt I, some of that. Back. I could I if I wanted to. Yeah. Did, so, so was Amelia Boone who won her first Spartan world champs running 15 miles a week, even in that era. Oh yeah. So oh, you yeah. went into that running less than 20 miles a week and you won a 14 mile mountain race. Yes. That took what? Three and a half hours. What was the length of that race? Yeah. It was like three and a half, four hours. Yeah. So were you just because that's like, I don't know, the mileage is glorified now. You know that we talk yeah. in miles and we talk in time on feet and all of that. And, and I think the community as a whole is still continuing to run more and more. Obviously, mm -hmm. that's a trap that you'd fallen into as well. Um, but were you even doing long runs? Like, how did you endure a three and a half, four hour race? Like, where did that come from? That was grit and innate and stubbornness, the queen think, of pain. I think so. Say. I mean, I think for me at that point, I had already done two death races and I had done World's Toughest Mudder. So from like, I had done, you know, a 24 hour race, I had done a 36 hour race, I'd done a 72 hour race. So it was a lot of like, just kind of just mental grit at that point. But you know, when I ran World's Toughest Mudder, the, the longest I had ever run before was 13 miles, you know, um, and then you go and you run for 24 hours. I don't, the one thing where I will say, I think you can get away as a low mileage athlete um, and still perform well, what's going to suffer is your recovery from it. Because like I, you know, like I, now I can bounce back from running, you know, a hundred K and be able to run in the next few days and feel fine just because my body has that wear and tear on it. But, uh, you know, like run, if you go out and you try and run for 24 hours and you've never done that before, you'll make it through. Sure. But like trying to recover from that is going to be awful. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the one area where mileage probably makes a difference in my non, non trainer, only lawyerly opinion. <laughs> well, there's some truth to that. 
And then yeah. there's also truth to the idea that if you're doing low volume, but you're working with a level of intensity and doing something like a CrossFit or like stair climbing that recruits a high percentage of your muscle, that it's kind of cramp proofing and it's staying power. Where if you work at a lesser percentage of that, you can you can sustain it and you can get and you we see it with CrossFit games all the time. They handle things like the marathon row or 10K bike races or 10K trail races or what we're about to see on the Spartan games where they had some CrossFitters out there, they can get through some really long efforts, yeah. but they're destroyed, but they do it because they have such a resistance to work that you can get through any individual task. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. I, I, I fully, I fully agree on that. And it's funny now because now I'm like rethinking everything and how I train, but the, the, what I realized and in the, at the end of the day is that um, I think that people just, need to do also what makes you happy in terms of training. So if I really wanted to try and get back into OCR and crush it at the top level, I would probably go back to running 15 to 20 miles a week and focusing on really high intensity stuff um, and keeping the volume low. Um, but I really like to run long miles out in the woods. So mm. it's kind of just that, like, what makes you happy? you know, being strength training and stuff like that, while I do it as a necessary evil to stay injury free, it's not kind of like, it doesn't appeal to me like long days on my feet. So I think that as athletes, you also just kind of have to realize that maybe sometimes it's going to be a trade-off. Like do you, what's more important to enjoy in your day-to-day -day training or like results at a race, I guess. I just want, I want you to walk us through, cause obviously you came in such a high note into the sport. Yeah. And as you mentioned, like it is, how do you, the only way to go from the top is stay there or go down. Right. And <laughs> it's true. And nobody, and nobody really like talks about that, like how hard it is yeah. to get to the top and then how hard it is as a developing sport to stay there. And then the mental battles you fight along the way as the fields, you know, widen and get more dense. And you obviously had injury struggles and other things going on, but like, I, I just want to be walked through, like you win the Spartan world championships, you become a Reebok Spartan pro athlete. You're suddenly like, yep, I'm going to do this deal. And you're the girl with the, the skirt on, but bloody knees going into the office. And which I really, that visual that you described <laughs> is like perfect. It really is. And then you just, you go all in. Right. And so now yeah. all of a sudden you're all in. And that was your only Spartan world champ. You had a lot of tough mutter world champs. Yeah. And I can list off all your amazing accolades, but um, what happens after that? You win. And now what happens? I'm going to pause you, Kirk. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to interrupt you now because I am going to read off her accolades. Oh, Amelia, uh -oh. <laughs> you can tune out now because I know this is like. This so cringeworthy to hear. But, yeah. Well, you want to see something? I have a list typed out on my phone. Oh, <laughs> so, oh. Right, so go ahead, Bracken. This is for the crowd that thinks that I'm Robert Killian. This is for the people that, <laughs> that need some context here. All right. Spartan World Championship finishes. Second, first, fourth, 11th. U.S. Uh, podiums, Nat, U.S. National Series podiums, eight, which is fifth all-time for women. Did Jack Bauer send you the same crap he sent me? <laughs> yeah, he said he didn't know if you'd check it or get back to him. He doesn't trust you anymore. I got, I have the same list. Go ahead. So thank you, Jack, <laughs> thank for holding you, Jack. us accountable. And uh, and I, I would like to add caveat that I also miss like, you know, half of the seasons in these past however oh, many yeah. years. So yeah. eight <laughs> national series podiums, probably all in the first three years. And yeah. I would like to say in your 11th place finish in 2017, which was a pseudo comeback, you did the most epic belly face flop off of a <laughs> hanger I have ever seen in my life. Still finished 11th. 
That was amazing. And caught on camera. Anne had finger surgery the next day as a result. So <laughs> go back and watch Amelia Boone do a belly flop off a banger. It is wonderful. Continue, Brandon. <laughs> First woman to podium at all five distances stadium, nice. sprint, super, beast, ultra beast. Something 11 have done total, and you were the first. Three-time World Toughest Mudder Champion. You were second the first year with 40 miles, first with 90, first with 75, and first with 75. And you are still the co-record holder for first for most miles ever completed by a woman at World's Toughest Mudder with 90 miles over the course of 24 hours. And how many obstacles per lap? Oh, God, I don't know, 30 maybe? 30. I don't so 100 now. miles in 24 hours is one of the gold standards of you yeah. can consider yourself an ultra runner. You did 90 in 24 and did 35 obstacles times what 30 or 40 depending on yeah. how they opened up lanes yeah 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 so and, a lot of obstacles and 90 miles would be tied with Rhea Coble, who for the current crowd knows is an ultra sensation um so just to build your credibility there like she no slouch and you hold the the record with her and it was also like 15 degrees outside that yes. year. <laughs> so we're done pumping you up we can Thanks. tear you down now but i know no wait don't i also don't i jack i think jackson made the thing that i think i it may not be the case anymore but in terms of my spartan race world finish i was like the highest like overall finish of a female finisher as well, you know, like in that yeah. one year, it was like the, like I finished like the highest, I think Lindsay might've beat that or somebody might've beat that by now. I don't but. think so. You were, you were top 10 overall one year at Worlds, right? Yeah. In the 2013. Yeah, I was. Yeah. yeah. So I don't think Lindsay, I don't think Lindsay's yet. No, Lindsay has not done that. Okay. At the Worlds. No, I, uh -uh. Yeah. I, for example, I, I blew up in, in Tahoe one year and took uh, 48th and just one year. No, I'm joking. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I've blown up multiple times. My worst blow up in Tahoe, I took 48th and four women beat. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I so it's not like we're putting multiple in the top yeah. 20. Yeah. So yeah, you, I think you're still the only woman to go top 10 in an overall world championship. Yeah. So, so I'll hang on continue. Well, yes. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I was just waiting <laughs> to give those accolades after she, she had told us about what happened after 2012 uh, or 2013. So what, right. happens, what happens after that then? What happens yeah. after your big win? So then I start to feel all of a sudden that I have pressure on me because now I am the Spartan Race World Championship champion and I love the sport, but it's now instead of, I, I slowly, and I don't know really where it switched, but I remember 2014 going through those races, starting to feel like, okay, I have to win this, like have to win this race. Everybody expects me to win this race. And I started to feel more and more pressure. Um, and I started to really let it get to me. Um, and I think it got to a point where, and then like Rose came into the sport and, you know, she was really good and we had so many great battles. And what's sad now is like, I, I see this now, I love Rose, but like, I was so terrified of her, you know, cause I was like, she's coming to steal everything from me, you know? And like, she's this new, you know, and blah, 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 blah. And I was, and I started to really let everything get to me. Um, and you know, and I did well in 2014, I ended up not doing the world championship because I had knee surgery instead. Um, I still kick myself for that. I wish I had just gutted through and done the world championship. What did you have? Uh, I had a bucket tear of my meniscus. And so my hey. knee, my knee kept locking. So I just couldn't. Yeah. So I was like, you've, you've been through that. <laughs> True this year. So you give me hope that. 
Yeah. I can still run volume. Oh yeah. I've had no, I've had zero, I've had issues with every body part except that. So, Hey, um, <laughs> so if that's any, if that's any hope, um, but, and then 2015, you know, and I, I was still doing well at Spartan races and I was, I was winning and I was doing well, but I think I stopped having as much fun with it. And slowly over the course of those of 2014 and 2015, which really were years that I was still dominating, I also just became a mental mess. Um, and I was, and cause I, I had this streak in my mind. I had the streak that I had never not been on a podium. Every Spartan race I'd ever run. I had always been on the podium. Um, and I was terrified of losing that streak. And it was actually Spartan race world championships in 2015, um, where I was winning at one point and the wheels fell off. I cramped up at the top and like, I could barely run. I ended up getting fourth. You missed and the I, bell, if I recall, on the last rig. Oh, so yeah. Close. Yep. Missed yep. the bell. Everything. Like, and I came in fourth. And I remember just being like, the world is ending, you know? Because, like, in my mind, I have the streak that nobody else knew about, but I knew. Um, and then I woke up the next day and I realized it wasn't as bad <laughs> as, like, as, you know, I thought. Yeah, I was like, oh, okay. Life goes on. Um and so I think for me, it was part of like, I started to kind of like heal my relationship with that when I realized that, you know, like, it's like, that's, that's a good thing as an athlete to be humbled a little bit. Um, but I also, you know, just like, I also had this itch to kind of do something else. So I started getting more into ultra running. Um, and then in 2016, um, before really the start of uh, the, before the start really of the Spartan racing season, I broke my femur. And then that's when I started my long multi-year injury cycle. Um, so it's interesting, Kurt, because you asked kind of about like the fall, you know, how, how you, what it feels like to, to be at the top and then come down from off of that. I don't know if I necessarily experienced that how some people do, because what I experienced was just an interruption. Um, you know, I, I was still at the top of the sport and then was injured and then had planned this massive comeback and then got injured again. And then finally, when I towed, I was off the start line at Spartan for over a year and a half. Um, so it was, it was the world championship in 2015. And then the next race that I ran was Monterey in 2017 in the spring. So it was like 18 months before I had been on a course. And I think I got like sixth or seventh or something like that. And I, and that was when I was kind of like this, realization that do I want to do, why am I doing this anymore? Do I do it because I love it or do I do it because I want to win? And do I only like it because I love winning? And I kind of had to go through this like reckoning with everything about my motivations. Um, and it was hard, you know, like that's a very hard thing to, to grasp as, as, as an athlete, um, to feel like you've fallen so far but then to figure out like, okay, well, do I want to walk away from this? Do I not want to walk away from this? Like, what is it that keeps me going? Um, and so that was a big process for me. Well, like, you know, also in your time of injury, while you were recovering, the women's depth of field quadrupled oh, yeah. at the same time. So it was like <laughs> the perfect storm to come back to because suddenly these crazy high-end you know, national level runners found the sport and, and that would be a tough pill to swallow. And it's not mm -hmm. always clear. Is it like, Oh, do I love to win or do I just enjoy competing or do I love the process? Like it is not black and white, no. obviously, 
we all still wrestle with it. I would assume. Yeah. What did you? So what did you land on then? When you were like, oh, I don't, I'm not winning. So do I like this? What do I like? about What did you land on? Have you landed on something? Yeah. You know, what's interesting is I actually, I landed on the fact that I just like being out there, but I realized I wanted to do the races that I wanted to do. What I liked, what I did not like about being on the Spartan Pro Team was being, being told what races I had to run. And they were all races that generally, aside from Palmerton and Killington, were races that I hated because they were like short little sprints and not what I enjoyed doing. And um, like, I remember being in Montana and just bitching and moaning because all I wanted to do was run the beast, but they were making us run the sprint instead. So what I kind of landed on was like, I want to run Spartan races and I want to run obstacle races, but I want to do them on my own terms. And like the winning doesn't, it, it, yeah, it's, it's nice to win. It's nice to do well. Um, but it's also something that when I have more control over it, I feel better about it. So, you know, it's, I, that's, I've clearly been on an, I was on an injury cycle for, you know, I ran in 2017, but then 2018, 2019, not really. I mean, <laughs> I did a few, it, but not really. And so my grand 2020 plan was I was coming back and doing an ultra series. I was going to do all the ultra series. And I was so stoked for that, actually. Like I was like ready to go actually training for obstacle racing again. And then and you and Raya head to head would be so much fun. I know, I know it would be great, you know, and like, she's clearly a much stronger athlete than me, but I don't care at this point, you know, if there's anything that I have lost over this, however many years I've lost my ego about any of this, you know? Um, so I like to compete, you know, and yeah, I still have a fire to win and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, I've, I think I've kind of realized what is the most important thing to me about the sport. And that's always really been just the experiences and the people. And I know that's super cliche, but it's true. <laughs> so well, I think, I think one of the many things I admire about you is you chose to come back knowing you weren't at your best, knowing you were dealing with things, knowing everything hadn't been going perfectly. And for example, you came back and to the West Virginia North American championship, like to go from the winner and go from the top and deal with all the struggles and all the bullshit of the gray area, which is just mm -hmm. like as an athlete torturous, right? Yeah. Knowing when can I run again? How can I run again? And still choosing to come back and know like, I'm probably going to go and not win. Like I know I would like to, but I don't care. I still like enjoy this enough to come do it. Like I don't know if you know, like how many people would not do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and I think it was, it was very hard. It was very, very, that year, 2017, 2018, when I was coming back to races and maybe cracking into the top five here and there, but most of the time not, um, it does actually really kind of like force you to, 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 to take a look at, at why you do things. But, um, it also, to me, just, it felt right, you know, and I've always joked with Spartan as much bullshit as I give them. And as much as I like am angry about certain things and how they run certain things or what they do, like they're never going to be able to get rid of me because I'm just going to keep showing up to races. <laughs> you, you, you know what, you know, when I knew that the Amelia was the new Amelia and obviously we don't know each other terribly well, but yeah. just what I'd found on social media and seeing your journey, I knew Amelia was the new Amelia when you took fourth place at Palmerton in a battle with Alyssa Hawley for the last spot on the podium. And you finished and crossed that finish line and looked like you did the day you won the Spartan world champs. And you said, I don't care that I took fourth place. I am just so happy to be here and be in a battle. And it was like, 
I, maybe for you, I don't know how it felt, but for me, it felt like the page finally turned. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that that was mm -hmm. actually one of, I remember that day at Palmerton and honestly, fourth place felt like a victory to me, which is amazing because a few years ago, like, I don't even think I would have been that joyful at winning a race, you know? And so I think that your perspective shifts over time, um, you know, and, and at the same time, I also in, in those times also was coming to this realization that there was something going on with my body and I was not taking care of it and I needed to take care of other problems, you know? Um, and so it, it, there is, there's been a lot, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Bracken, you called that race, didn't you? Yeah, we're going to have to hold on. The garbage and recycling truck are right outside my house right now. So I just have a ton of noise. So you're going to have to uh, keep chatting. You. Yeah. I'll okay. be good for what do we, like what do we chat about? Yeah. Usually when Bracken gets quiet, it's because there's some sort of noise going on. It's his kids or the church bells or his. Yeah. Can you hear it? No. It, no, it's not bad. I think you're okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it's it's interesting because I feel like Amelia and I, uh, her on a much higher level than I, but we've kind of mirrored each other's careers. We both came into the sport before it was fully formed. We both had immediate success. And then you really, I didn't win world. So I always thought I was going to the next year and the next year, like I was, I was third. I can, I, I took second in the short course world. Like I, I'm going to win one. And I just kept moving down a spot. And, you know, same kind of thing though, where when we left due to injury, we felt like, well, if I had just, if I just came, came back in the fitness I planned on, we're there. But uh, I, you called a, a few races that I was in when I was running in like sixth or seventh or fourth for a while. And you're like, oh, it's good to see Bracken up there for a while. And then I called the race you were in and you're in fourth or fifth. But I'm sure we're both feeling the same thing. Like, that's not the Amelia I know. Like, A, it does give credence to your success in the past that you can come back at less than optimal fitness and physical and mental health and take fourth place in a world championship and at NBC races like that, that says, yes, what you did or it justifies what you did earlier when the field's better and you're at a depleted state and you come back and do that. But at the same time, like that's not satisfying. I was happy for you, but it wasn't, it wasn't satisfying for me to call a race of yours where you're not at your full potential. And so you, I feel like you hit it right on the head. It was, you were saying my feelings I've had over the years when you said like, I didn't drop off. I felt like I just got interrupted. Yeah. And the hard part is then when do you come to the grips of, is that interruption, has that moved into drop off or are we still like, we have this, we are, the interruption is now over 2021. This is the season. And, right. and it's, it's something I personally struggle with a lot is am I crazy for having this insane belief that now I'm back on the comeback trail and I'm going to be better than ever? Or is this legitimate? Like we're still in our early to mid thirties. Like this is, we can still do this kind of thing. See, I, I know. And that's that I, yeah, you, you nailed it on the head because I think for me and actually Woodsy has been very vocal to me about this and that he believes that a lot it, it's a lot of the self-belief that I need more self-belief that I still have it in there that if I want to come back with fire and grit and like give it all, like I have it in there. I just have to believe in myself instead. And it's not as simple as that, but what I'm missing is not that like, I'm not in shape or blah, 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 blah. Or like, you know, I have so many injuries. It's just that I need to believe that I still have that in me, you know? Yeah. And I think that that's, 
yeah, a tough, a tough thing to do sometimes. Yeah. There was a time where every race course you stepped onto, you expected to be in the lead. Yeah. And the races were, and it's funny, I just, I was on the spin bike yesterday and I decided to watch a race and I watched Washougal. Yeah. <laughs> and I watched, it was the first Which time. Which year? You, probably 14. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was the first time you raced rows on a fast course. Oh yeah. And it was interesting that even though you didn't expect to lead every section of it, you expected to win the race. And you saw that. And she would sometimes do her crazy rose surges where she'd come off an obstacle and sprint <laughs> for a quarter mile. Yeah. But you would, you would hang on, you'd mitigate damage, and you'd move past on other things. And you saw like that, that was, I saw like, that's Amelia. That's the Amelia I know, the one that I'm on the course because I'm the one to beat here. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's exactly right. You know, Woods is right that you have not eroded physically. Right. You probably are f- more of a full person with your injury behind you now, injuries. But it's that just the expectation of saying, I'm out here to see what I can do versus I'm out here to, and they can see what they can do against me. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is it's for me. I think it's you lose so much confidence. And especially when you've stepped away and especially when you haven't like been performed, but it's like finding, you know, it's any sports psychologist will tell you, it's just finding that knowing, falling back on knowing that you can do what you can do, you know? And I actually like, I did, I ran world stuff matter this past year. And for the first like 40 miles, I was like, "Mm, no, I can totally do this. I was like, I got this. I was like, oh, I got this still. And then the wheels came off and yeah, I was, I was not, it was not a good thing, but like, at the end of the day, I think I realized like, I know, and I'm planning on running like world's toughest matter this year again. Like, I know I can do that race. You know, I just have to really actually just like stop, stop. Like I need to work on the self-doubt aspect of it being of like the, uh, you're too washed up. You've had too many injuries, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You, so. you know, you know, we had this conversation with Matt Novakovich a while back and and the one thing is, is like for him, for example, he decided like, I'm just going to jump in a random race and I expect to be right back where I left off and kick an ass. And then he would show up and he'd get his butt kicked in his eyes and then be like, what the heck? I don't get it. It's like one of those things, like you can't build that confidence unless you like reimmerse yourself somehow and make yourself vulnerable a few times. But think about the Amelia uh, pre-injury, mm-hmm. like you were constantly sort of coming back and coming back and you don't build confidence just by deciding you have it. You kind of have to create it or earn it through showing up, I feel like. And not just showing up once, but like committing to an ultra series, like you said, like, you know where your confidence would be at the end of an ultra series if you'd stayed healthy and participated. I think it would have created itself naturally. It's just, we haven't had that opportunity to do it. Why would you have confidence? We've barely been We've barely been putting putting it out there. Like, <laughs> what have you been racing this past year? I don't know. You know, like I can't wait for everybody to get back on an obstacle race the first time and be like, I don't know what to do with my hands anymore. You know, but you're right. It's a, it's about building momentum. It's so much in sports is about that momentum. And I think for me, what you know, from 2016 through 2019. I had zero momentum because I could maybe come back to a race and then I would get injured again. And then I would try and do another race and then I would get injured again. And you just, yeah, you lose it, you know? So I, it's just, it's key to kind of like swallow your ego for a little bit and realize that it's going to be a little bit of a process, but then just to keep building on that. And that's the thing that actually, that's what drives my motivation is that I like that continual pursuit of mastery. 
And so that's why I was super excited to get back into the ultra series and to do things like that because it is like, okay, like I almost feel like starting over at ground zero, like coming back into things, not, you know, not the name in the sport anymore, um, you know, not the focus and then just do my thing and enjoy it. I was on a run with Ryan Kent about a week ago and we were talking about that exact thing. Mm -hmm. And I was saying how for a while I envied the people who came into the sport late and had to come in at top 20 and work to top 10. And then when the first time they took eighth, it felt like heaven. And then Mm -hmm. the first time they took fifth, it felt like heaven. (laughs) And they're still like, they're still dreamers and they're still hungry and thirsty and just craving it. Whereas when you come in and have some success, and again, yours is much higher than mine. It's really hard to be hungry and thirsty. And I used to envy them that they have a mindset that you can't fabricate. And yet now we've been reduced yeah. back down to it. And now we're young in that that yeah. sense. Like we have to relearn to win. We have to relearn to yeah. belong. And suddenly the first top 10, it's going to be pretty damn sweet. And then the first top five and the first top three, th- there won't be a position on the course that ever gets taken for granted again. And yeah. it's like you've had a, you've been baptized and you're a new racer again. You get yeah. to every, every race you come to now is your first time there. And mm-hmm. so you get first time struggles and that's okay. But you also get the first time feels anytime you do something. Yeah. Oh no, that's so well put because I think that like you and I both went, you know, we didn't have that experience. So that kind of like that, that slow clawing rise to the top. Um, and I think that is such a great thing to keep you hungry as an athlete. So I'm all for it. <laughs> it's got to be pretty liberating to have like a rebirthing as an athlete of an, as an athlete. I feel like both yeah. you and Bracken and I'm five months off of running. I had a foot stress fracture. And so I'm kind of in yeah. the same boat, but never nearly as accomplished as you two. But like, isn't that like, that? don't you feel like you got a clean page to start writing on again? Mm-hmm. Kind of? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your, your cup should be half full. I feel like right now, like you could spin this any way you want, but like, really best case scenario right now, you're starting over and rewriting the story. And that's awesome. And it yeah. is. And yet this is exactly what every washed up person says right before they go out and prove that they're washed up. <laughs> no, no. Shut up. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't worry. I'm glad he said it because I was totally thinking it. Yeah, like every every all-time great, and I'm not talking about me here because that's not me, but every all-time great, every old-timer who is something special who comes back, they either pr- – sometimes prove themselves right. But more often than not, people don't retire on top. They don't leave when they should have and they come back when they shouldn't. And yet they feel the way that Amelia, you feel and the way that I feel. And we both believe we're different because how old are you now? 37. 37. And I'm 33. And we're both like, yeah, we are we on the right side of history. We're on the right side of age. We I don't. Have, I don't believe that. But Holy Call came back at thirty nine. That's true. That's true. That's yeah. I yeah. So, anyways, we believe that we are the exception because we yeah. have exceptional circumstances, and yet to the outside perspective, people are sick and tired of people always coming back and then being like, "Oh, well, if it wasn't for my meniscus, or if it wasn't for my hip, or." You know, I wasn't quite prepared. I didn't have time. Like we now have our time. We now have our health. We now have it. And so at this point, all there's really left to do is either prove statistics right or prove ourselves insane belief right. And it's really cool. But also having that sobering view in the back of my mind, like this is what disillusioned people say. (laughs) Like this is what 
people who are confused. This is what they say. This is Michael Jordan going into baseball. (laughs) (laughs) The alternative alternative is shit. What's the alternative? Not having the belief? Screw that. No, and that's the, what is the alternative? Just not racing? Like just, just putting yourself out to pasture? Fuck no. Well, you don't have an off switch. We don't, we we weren't born with that switch that says, you know what? I'm okay now going out and running with friends each day. Because right. we run with friends each day and then we get fit and we say, screw it, I need to race. Like we don't have that. And so we're going to have to find out the hard yeah. way. Like we have to find out firsthand. We either have to have it proven to us that we're right or proven that we're wrong, but there's not going to be an in-between. Yeah. And and I, I honestly, I used to, if you'd asked me, I remember I had this conversation with Matt Davis in 2015 and he was like, you know, you seem like you're not super into the sport anymore. And he's like, maybe you should retire and go out on top. And I was like, yeah, I was like, nobody likes the person that just hangs on and they're slow to climb and blah, 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 blah. Like, yes, I should just mic drop, walk away, won that wor- third world's toughest mutter and never come back. And then I'm like, no, no, like Who that's not, other that's, people like? well, and th- th- that's just not, I still want to race. I still want to do this. And then the, here's the thing. I'm still going to want to race when I'm 60 or 70 years old. I'm not going to be on the top of the podium there, like newsflash, but it is also about as you get older and as you like, I still think I have a few years left to be like, go, let's go fuck some shit up. But like at some point, my expectations are going to have to adjust. And if I want to be a lifelong athlete, because that's what I want to do, you know, so. Uh, I, I don't believe, I don't believe at 37 or 32, Brack, and I'm 37 as well. It is not a fool's dream. It is a, re- it is a realistic dream to come back. What takes us out over time is injury. It's not lack of ability. It's not lack of desire. Typically it's, you just can't get your feet back underneath you consistently enough to perform like you did when you're younger. And if yeah. you can stay injury free and make it a priority, there's no reason that any of us on this podcast can't come back and blast some young idiots out of the water. Right. So you're just looking at, you're just, you're listening to the next world champions right now on this podcast. So I guess you two are going to have to duke it out. So sorry. <laughs> well, I hope everyone listening understands that this isn't me trying to yeah. cut our legs off on our hopes and dreams. This is me saying that this is what outsiders would say. Oh, this yeah. is the realistic yep. odds mm-hmm. are we don't succeed. Right. But you're here because you've exceeded the odds throughout your life. You are not yeah. in the rest of the 99th percentile. You're an upper 99th percentile, 99.9 person in the mm-hmm. areas of your life, including obstacle course racing and endurance sports. Like You're here because you've defied the probability of success. And, and right. that's why you have insane belief. And Kirk's right about injury usually cuts us off. But I would argue that just as often actual drive and commitment mm-hmm. retires people. And that I would say both of us have hit that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But like an ultra, we've kind of come out the other side now. So now you've <laughs> got the drive, the fire back. Right. And your age still is not a factor yet. Yeah, no. And especially for the longer events, you know, I, I don't like short, short courses, mm, not my thing, but they were never my thing. So, right. um, yeah. So I, you know, I, I, I think that there's, if, uh, if anybody's out there who's listening, who's in there, you know, like feels like they're old and washed up, don't give up. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah. What are you hip surgery, knee surgery, whatever else? 37. God, I, was, yeah. I mean, right. Yeah. It's yeah. how many stress fractures have I had in the past? However many years. Yeah. Name a bone. I've broken it. So, <laughs> so that's my segue then yeah. into 
I, Kirk and I have talked ad nauseum about our comeback and I hate even using our journey back from injury and my journey back to motivation and self-belief. And we have helped me and I'm trying to help Kirk put safeguards in place to avoid regression. Yeah. You know, Kirk with his left lower leg, Mm -hmm. me with my lower back and with my motivation, with my consistency. Like we have talked what our plan is Mm -hmm. and you are an intelligent person. You know, you made it through law school. You, you you can analyze a problem and you can break it down to its core principles and enact a plan of action. Yeah. And I'm curious what that is. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, for me, it's it's been about this entire year has been about consistency. The thing that I have needed to get back to because it was always run, 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 injury, rebuild from injury, run, 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 injury, rebuild from injury. Um, and never just being able to get into a groove, um, and to, to keep building on that because then you're always rebuilding. And when you're always rebuilding, you're also always fearful of re-injury. Um, and so mentally you just get beaten down over and over again, being like, okay, what bone am I going to break next? That's like, was always in the back of my mind. Um, and so you know, this past year has been the most consistent that I've ever been in training. Um, I've maybe had to take a week or two off here or there for just random soft tissue stuff that points up, up, haven't knock on wood, had a stress fracture in a year, which is like some type of, some type I'm not gonna of make I know I was like, I was like, Oh God, I don't even know if I want to say this. Um, but, and, and just really getting into that into that groove um, for me, I think is really important. And also just learning that my body can handle things and that I'm not as fragile and breakable as I've thought about, you know, and, and, and Biggs helps with that. You know, I ran 137 miles and body felt fine afterwards, you know, some soft tissue stuff that took a week to resolve, but it's just kind of like, no, I can do this and I'm taking care of myself now. And like having that confidence. I think most of my lack of confidence personally came from just the fact that I did not trust my body from so many years of just breaking stuff over and over and over again. And you get so fearful that you can just mentally psych yourself out of anything. So how much much does, I mean, it's a tough question to answer, but how much do you believe food has a correlation with your injury prevention plan moving forward? Oh, it's like hundred percent. I, I, I mean, I think for me, what I've realized is that it, 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 and everyone has different theories on food and fueling. My, my perspective is that you just need to make sure it's enough. Like you have, you're going to get into injury issues if you're under fueling and any like, so caloric surplus has to be like the thing that is the number one thing that will help keep you at least from a bone injury perspective um, you know, injury free, uh, there are stress fractures that are more mechanical, but when you are looking at, you know, for, for anyone who's listening, if you are getting stress fractures of your sacrum, of your femur, of your calcaneus, anything with like trabecular bone, things that should not generally be fracturing, that is more nutritional related thing. Things like metatarsals, things like that tends to be more like biomechanical at points. Um, But I think for me, it's been very much just like the number one thing for injury prevention is food, you know, for endurance athletes. 
your daily thought process at this point, like yeah. when it comes back to your love of sport and wanting mm -hmm. to be able to do this, is that kind of your why for seeking treatment again and making sure like, obviously to be healthy and live a long life and all those things, but is it all completely intertwined? Like yeah. if I want to do this, I need to, need to get help and get healthy again and, yeah. and all of that. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I decided to seek treatment again last year, it was, I mean, there are a number of reasons, but an overriding one is I was tired of not being able to do what I love to do. I was so depressed. I, you know, I was going to run the Spartan Race World Championships in 2018. I ended up with a stress fracture in my metatarsal. And then in coming back from that and trying to get ready for Barkley, I broke my heel. And I was just like, are you, are you kidding me? Like, I can't, all of these things that I want to do so badly my body is not letting me do. And I had to come to that very like tough conclusion, look at like, okay, well, there is some, everything else, biomechanically, everything looks fine. Still got a T-Rex arm, but whatever. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> like, I have to like, take a look, a hard look at myself and be like, maybe I'm not fueling myself correctly. So yeah, it was, that was entirely. And to this day now, my, I do not train. So I still follow a meal plan because I think that, um, for the amount of training that I do, um, trying to be like, I'm just going to eat intuitively and eat when I'm hungry and not eat when I'm not hungry is not actually a great thing for an athlete. It's very hard to do for an athlete. So to keep myself accountable, if I don't hit my certain meal plan a day, I don't train. I am not mm. allowed to train. Good. For so you. I like that's, that. that is how I, I have a bare minimum. I can always go over that. And on days when I'm in heavier training, if I have longer runs, then I have to go over that. But if I don't hit the minimum, then I don't train. And that is like non-negotiable. And sure, I've slipped up. I will fully admit I have not been perfect in this. But as time has gone on and I've like made that deal with myself, it's gotten much, much easier. And it becomes almost just like automatic. Like if this is what I want to do, if this is what I want to race, if I want to train, I need to put this much fuel in my body. So... That fed up point has to occur for most people. And usually yeah. athletes have to hit a version of rock bottom mm -hmm. because we are stubborn, hard-headed, learn by failure type people. And mm -hmm. half of that frustration is like you said, not being able to do what you want. And the other half that I believe is really true for people is we get to the point where we're tired of telling people the same thing and not being <laughs> able to back it up. Yep. Like, I'm tired of, of giving interviews or conversations like, hey, this was my problem. I beat it. I am I am on track and I am just going to be like, you've never seen me before. And then three weeks later, it's like, oh, and by the way, like, yeah, five weeks ago, I was I was lying to myself. Right. You know, and we all do that and, and we all see other people do it. And eventually that I'm sick of not backing up these grand claims that I have for myself. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. And I was like, and it was almost, there was a lot of shame in that too. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just like, yeah, said I was going to be back, said this was all fixed. Nope, still not fixed. And I do realize now, like I have to, I do try and give myself some grace and that I, this is still an active process. I am going to have slip ups. I hope to not have another major stress fracture, but look, I've really screwed with my body over the past 20 years. So my bone density is at a point where it could happen. But like, it's just trying to mitigate and, you know, that as, as much as I can and change my training based on that. So I can stay healthy and maybe come in a little bit, quote unquote, under trained, but 
still be able to be at that start line, you know? And, and I keep going back to him like, Amelia, you are so undertrained going into all of your world championships <laughs> and you won them. So maybe that's the key. <laughs> yeah. You bring up two things that I, I want to dive into just a little yeah. deeper. And the first is that you brought up that I, I know I will have slip ups. And I love the fact that we are in a day and age of empowerment. And people are getting more and more comfortable and confident with speaking out and announcing the things that they've struggled with internally for years that we've that we've hidden. However, a pet peeve of mine is when people speak as if they've won. When someone says this great empowering, you know, I had this problem, I didn't tell anyone for years, and but now moving forward, I'm great. So let's do it. It's almost like it's a it's a cop out. You're you're admitting after the fact and not admitting that it's still happening. And yet these things are not beatable, they are battleable. Like you can battle it into submission, but it doesn't give up. It's always lurking. And that's an important thing for people to, that people need to know is that you don't just flip a switch and I'm cured. Yep. You you shut the door and it keeps trying to open and you have to keep your foot pressed against the door. And I think people let their guard down oftentimes to see, well, oh, this athlete, they beat it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna beat it and then I can just go on. That, that that's not it. No, yeah. And that's so well felt and great analogy because and and I think that a lot of people in the eating disorder recovery world kind of disagree with me because I always say, like, I'm not recovered. I don't actually believe I will ever be recovered. I believe that the day that I say that I am recovered with an ED is the day that I am potentially going backwards. Like mm -hmm. I need to keep the attitude that I will always be in recovery, that I will always need to be vigilant, that it's not going to be something that like, oh, I beat this and everything is fine now. And I've come out the other side because I'm with you, Brock. And like so many times I didn't talk about my eating disorder for a long time because all I heard were these success stories of people saying, well, I had an eating disorder, but I am now recovered and I have no problems anymore, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, great, good for you, but that's not me. And so it took me a long time to finally be like, okay, I'm going to speak up, but I'm going to speak up in the, in the process while the process is happening, because this process is going to go on for the rest of my life. Yeah. You know, whether I like it or not, it's going to go on for the rest of my life. When you made that first, you know, post, your posts are, are super vulnerable and super relatable and super awesome. I went back and filtered through some of your old stuff like years ago, because you don't post a ton, so I can get down yeah. there pretty quick. Yeah. And then I was looking at the recent, the recent stuff, and it's just become so raw and stripped. And like you, when you push like post on that first admittance of what's going on with you, why did you do that? Like what? What was the thought process there? Because you opened a whole a whole box of relatability and vulnerability and human, you know, humanism that I think a lot of people didn't know existed in you. Why did you why did you decide to go public with everything? And I know a, a recent post you posted about anxiety and things that real struggles that real people have. Why? You know, I, I think for me, I had felt like there was this awful, awful kind of secret or part of me that I was hiding for so many years or a part of myself that I, that I, for so many years as an athlete was proclaiming to be something that didn't really feel true and authentic to me, that I was hiding an entire part of my life and struggles that shaped me who I was, you know, that, you know, those six weeks in the hospital when I was entirely by myself as, you know, a 16 years old, those, those shaped who I am. People ask, where do you get mental grit? I think a lot of it actually came from those kinds of experiences. 
And so for me, coming out and talking about this was actually kind of reclaiming myself as a whole. And I, for many years, also thought that people will only love you if you are winning, if you are doing all the right things, if you are what everybody wants you to be, and that people won't love you if they see weaknesses, if they see the dirty parts, if they see the scared little girl parts, you know, that like the insecurities and fears that we all have. And um, it was so it was, for me, it was almost just a way to challenge all of that. And I didn't, I was terrified to put it out there because I didn't know what it was going to be like. And I actually had people, I had people, I mean, 99% of the response was totally positive, overwhelmingly supportive. But I did have some people reach out to me and they said, I used to look up to you and you are a fraud and you are a lie and everything you said and how you put yourself out there. And that was all a lie. And I'm like, mm -hmm. yeah, okay. That's, you know, but I'm learning that you're just always going to get that regardless. Uh, but I think it was actually, in some ways, it was just selfishly a very freeing thing for me just to be like, this is who I am. I cry literally every day. Like I, that is, that is me. That does not mesh with the world champion queen of pain, but I can actually hold space for both of those, you know? So. How can you not admire that? <laughs> yeah, and can you imagine the, the nerve? And self-centeredness it would take to fire off a mean message to someone that just admitted <laughs> struggle like that. <laughs> uh, a very unhappy, a very unhappy person. Okay. Yeah. And there's a lot of unhappy people on the internet. I have learned that. You, you know, Ilya, when I when I was doing a lot of dating, I would I would bring a girl home to meet my mother, and my mom would be like, I don't like her. And I'd be like, Well, she's sweet and great. And she'd say, Yeah, but she hasn't been through some shit. She mm -hmm. has never struggled. I don't think she's going to be good for you because she doesn't have any perspective. Yeah. And she's like, I want you to bring home a broken girl, somebody who's been through some shit, somebody who has real life perspective. And there's a lot of truth in that. People who have any sort of head on their shoulders appreciate the struggle, not the victory. Yeah. And, and I think you're obviously seeing that. Read the comments under what you post. My goodness. You yeah. got a support staff, don't you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's. I think what I've realized is that you know, winning podiums, winning races got people to kind of admire me or to like put me on a pedestal and be like, wow, she can do super cool things. But being able to relate to people, like that's what gets, that's how you respect other people, you know, and being able to share in those experiences. And, you know, like that's how you, I think for so many years, I just wanted to be able to connect to people. And I always thought I could connect if I was like winning a race, I was connecting because like people would be like, you're so awesome. And I'm like, yay, that's not connection. That's not connection. You know, at the end of the day, we connect to people by opening up and being vulnerable and sharing in these things. And um, so I think that that's been a huge thing for me, you know, to like realize it also gives me a new purpose, you know, something that I can help give back, um, you know, to so many people that like gave to me. Yeah. So. Well, your social media is is proof that humanity matters still, because <laughs> fame and admiration leaves the day you stop being famous or admirable. Mm -hmm. You know, the the second you stop making a podium, if that's your substance that you provide, then they just turn to the person who replaced you, and now they're followed. But when you're relatable, when you show a struggle, when you show vulnerability, and when you give something to actually strive for that a person can can you know aspire to be, rather than just 
an aspiring athlete, then suddenly that's staying power. This is why six years later, you're not lacking for support or, or people to comment on your post because you have people that are engaged with the person rather than the world champion. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and I think I've, I've, I've realized that it is, it is so much athletes have so much to offer beyond sport, you know, and I, I wish that more athletes would recognize that too, you know, um, that you don't have to be that mechanical person that all you do is out there and go out and bash and win, you know, that like you are a whole person. Um, and like to put all those parts out, um, with you. Cause that's where the 99% of the people in the world will not ever be able to relate to standing on top of a podium or winning a world championship. But everyone out there has had self doubt, has had struggle, has had some type of mental health issue. Like we all go through that and it helps to know that other people are doing it, you know, and, and the people that you th once thought were maybe quote unquote invincible. hundred yeah. percent. And it's cliche that Athletes have more. Athletes can be more than that. It's cliche until it's not. Yeah. Anyone can go all in and be, I am an athlete. That is my persona, but it's not a sustainable lifestyle. And when if you're young or if you're super successful, you can run it for a while, but eventually we're humans and we break down physically or mentally. And at that point, then it finally makes sense to people. Like how they say, you never, you can't understand being a parent until you're a parent, or you can't understand working a full-time job until you work a full-time job. You can't understand being broken down until you break down. And yet everyone does. And that's when you realize I'm an athlete is not a career plan. That's not yeah. a life plan. That's a, that's a, a, a time sensitive pursuit. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. So I had a second thing. I said, I have yeah. two things I yeah. wanted to talk about. <laughs> we really got into one. The second is you briefly said, you know how you jokingly almost said, I, I have to keep telling myself I was out of, I was out of shape when I got to the start line of world championships that I won. <laughs> and, and you went from 15 miles a week to over a hundred miles per week at your peak, correct? Uh, like when I was, did I, I know I never, I've never hit a hundred mile a week. I think I ran like 90 miles or okay, something Okay. So like 90 miles a week. Close, yeah. Yeah. So, so your, your expectations of what a normal or a high training week are have changed over time. Yeah. So getting back to the safeguards in place, arriving back healthy and accessible, you know, based off the availability is the best ability to have. Yeah. What is your plan to be available? How, what is my, what does yeah. volume look like for you now? Yeah. Good question. Um, volume for me is so this past year, I think I've been sitting pretty much between 40 and 50 miles a week, um, for running, uh, which I know is actually a decent volume, but I am surrounded by 40 million ultra runners. So it seems very low volume to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, and 40 miles per week in Boulder is worth about 10 miles per week. On, on normal right. places. Exactly. Yeah. 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 No, I'm used to, I'm used to people who run hundred, 120, 150 mile weeks. So, uh, it, it's interesting how perspective changes. Um, so I'm about like 40 to 50 miles a week. I run five days a week. Um, I, and then, you know, because of my history with bone stress injuries, um, I do a fair amount of cross training. So a lot of my volume has actually come from the thing that everyone is sick of me talking about, which is the elliptigo. Um, so, uh, I will do that like long rides on that. Um, and, uh, and then I actually just more recently within these past like few months have gotten into back into a strength, well, a, str a structured strength training routine, 
like two to three times a week um, because I just know it's so important. Um, my dog with their cone is cooking me. Um, <laughs> and, uh, um, but yeah, uh, so it has been very much um, just trying to kind of like keep the strength, keep the aerobic. I don't think aerobic base is ever going to be my issue though. Cause then I actually mm -hmm. realized after I've had a really hard time recovering after bigs. Um, like I try and go out and run and my heart rate spikes to like 160 um, when it shouldn't be. So I think I've actually realized that I may be into kind of a transient, like overtraining, overreaching territory. Uh, so I'm actually cutting back even more right now um, because I've lost some of my top end speed. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually really kind of want to like return, try and maintain what I can still maintain of that at 37. All of um, so yeah, so I, I think like I, now it's just, it's, it's kind of fun playing for me. So I don't, I won't go over like 50 miles a week, but I actually probably think I should go less and, um, do some more like intensity and some quicker stuff versus, you know, the long, slow stuff that I like to do. And the older you get, I mean, I'm 37, I'm your same age. Um, the older you get, the more important it is to keep that pencil sharp. Otherwise yeah. it remains dull and it never somehow gets back. So it's, it's a good yeah. plan. And are you on top of your mileage? So you'd be like running 40-ish miles a week and then also putting time on the elliptical on top of that. So you're, you're probably a relatively high volume athlete, but not a high volume runner right now. Yes, correct. I would be a high volume athlete, not a high volume runner um is probably like the way to look at it i also think that moving to altitude this year i think the cumulative fatigue has kind of finally caught up to me i didn't feel it at all for the first few months i was like mm. i'm running the same paces that i ran in california and then like three or four months in things started to like slow down um so it's kind of keeping on top of that too um and and figuring that out um but it's, uh, I don't know. That's part of the reason that I also like training is this, this, this great puzzle to try and figure out what works best for you and mm -hmm. what your body responds to and what your body doesn't respond to. Um, because I actually feel really good coming off of like a week of just like elliptigo and gravel biking. I feel fantastic. Whereas I know some people, if they don't run for an entire week and they get out and run, they feel awful, you know? So it's just kind of like figuring out that, that, um, kind of song and dance as well. That's, that's so important. And oftentimes yeah. late in career, not that we're late in career, but in our career to date, we're in the farthest yeah. we've come. So this is late yeah. career for us that we hit this, we come into our sport, especially a, a non-traditional sport like ultra or trailer or OCR. And you come in doing what you know and what you love. And mm -hmm. then you see other people's success and you realize there's a greater wealth of knowledge out there and they all say to do something different. And we go all in on that. And then eventually you return to your roots with what you've picked up along the way. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it seems like you're back at that. You're back at that. All right. I, I got through that. I have to run big mileage. I got through, I have to do certain things a certain way. And now I'm going to get back to the things that I know work for me. It doesn't matter if it didn't work for a research group or if it right. didn't work for the Olympic training center, if it works for me and now I pair it with that high level knowledge that I picked up along the way. Now you've optimized your training, even yeah. if it wouldn't work for me or Kirk or, you know, Lindsay or Rhea, if it works for you, that's your best training plan. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that for so many years, it's just like, all I wanted to do was be a high mileage athlete. And, you know, I just, I just wanted to be that person. And now I'm really, I'm like, I'm not that person. I'm not, mm -hmm. you know, as, as much as I would like that. And I, it, it's just, I don't respond like that. Um, and so I think as we get older, 
you know, we may slow down, but I think we, what that we gain in wisdom and understanding our bodies and what we respond to so much better. Um, you know, and it's like, it's, I think Hobie realized that really more than anybody else. I mean, as unconventional as Hobie, what Hobie did, it worked for him, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so Until the very laugh, end, yeah. he was incredibly healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Now you, know? you, you said something that I do want to address. You said that you're a non-responder to high volume. And I mm -hmm. think that a lot of people look at people like yourself or myself as non-responders. And I think it's the opposite. I think that we're super responders. Mm -hmm. I think that's why people can get by off lower volume is because you're, you're a super responder. You respond yeah. to every bit of stimulus. And so when you get too much of it, you respond so greatly that it's, it's not sustainable. Yeah. And that's why people like you, and I, I assume you, and, and anytime I've popped a big volume week, I need like two or three of them and I feel bulletproof. And yeah. if I get five or six, I'm destroyed, but off 40 to 60 miles, you know, I, I made my first world podium off 38 miles per week. Yeah. You know, it's like, I think that they are super responders and I think people need to, to adopt a view of that rather than like, oh, I just can't be a high mileage. It's like, no, you have a superhuman gift to respond to less. You get to do less of that. Yeah. And now you get to spend more time on other things. Right. It's like, you just, you have such, I think, you know, it's like, I maybe have built such an aerobic engine over my life. That and I just I think and naturally genetically also just have an aerobic engine yeah. that seems to run in my family that I don't need to overload it with fuel. <laughs> you know, the fire is already burning. I can make it too hot, you know. Exactly. Um, so yep. that's more and more like what I'm what I'm realizing. Absolutely. There's a reason why people coming off of months off of injury you come and you like start running. You're like, I feel amazing. Like I feel great when I'm off of yeah. months off of running, you know? So we, we love analogies. Yeah. <laughs> and I love thinking of running performance. Like it's a business transaction. Yeah. You have to be willing to spend money to get a good product in return. Mm -hmm. But in the normal realm of shopping, everybody knows that what you get back does not hundred percent correspond to what you pay for. Like you just got done house shopping. If you found pretty identical houses and one was 350 and one was 550, you wouldn't feel like, oh, I need to buy 550 because more is always better. You'd be like, I'm trying to get the best house for the least amount of money I can invest. Right. Yeah. And yet for running, we don't look at that. We don't look at it and say, I could invest 40 miles per week or 90 and maybe run about the same time. I better invest 90 because running's better. Like we, we do that when, instead of saying like, I got a hell of a deal of 40 miles per week, <laughs> right? you need to start getting a discount the most for our money rather than how much money we can spend. Oh, I know. I, I, I think I honestly believe, and I believe things like as, as great as Strava is for some things, I believe that is, is awful in terms of getting people into a state of overtraining. Yeah. And that is the one thing that's going to kill your potential is just hammering and hammering and hammering and never backing off, you know? Um, I, mean, I was going to say the way to get, the way really to get better over time is to do the least amount of as possible to continue improving. Right. Yeah. yeah. And people just go way too head first into way too much. And then they mess up the whole dang scale. Yeah. And it's so true. Get as much as you can for as little of an investment as you can figure out. And that's called sustainability. Then you don't go bankrupt. Right. <laughs> Have you seen on the Strava app? They they updated your stats section. 
Mm, no, so I don't think so. It shows your training per week and all that. Right, but yeah. then on the same, if you scroll down, it now has your lifetime PRs on things. Oh, okay. And I've decided I want the most polarized uh, <laughs> Strava stats ever. When people click, because you know, every time you see someone who has a segment, you click yeah. to see what they're like. And right. I usually click, I'm like, oh, this guy's doing 100 mile weeks. And then I have to make a couple more clicks to find out, oh, he's only a 1655K runner. I'm going to take this segment down. I want people to <laughs> start scrolling down and be like, this guy's like a, a weekend warrior trainer and then scroll down and be like, oh crap, you ran 420 last week. Like, that's what I want now. I, I want the biggest, the biggest return on the smallest investment. I know. I think my, I think my Strava PR for a marathon in there is like 437 because I ran it. It's like, it was a day that I did a 26 or 27 mile training run and it had like 8,000 feet of vert or something is something totally stupid. I'm like, yeah, I want people to see that I'm a 436 marathoner, you know? <laughs> Little do they know. So, so Amelia, as we are, we're approaching two hours here yeah. which is where we like to shoot for, we like to give people something to listen to on their long run. And, and this is going to be a good one. Oh God. But, but I want to know the last thing I think, you know, before we wrap this thing up is, you know, it's been a weird year with racing and training, and obviously the ultra series didn't happen. What's uh, yeah. what's next in an ideal world for Amelia Boone? <sighs> in an ideal world, um, you know, I I do I want to come back full bore into the ultra series next year if it happens. Um, I actually really, I'm I think I've spent a few years kind of chasing like the like the Barkley marathon thing and bigs and everything like that. But I'm itching to get back into OCR in some realm, you know? Um, so in an ideal world, I'm giving that a go. Um, and then probably mix in, you know, a few ultras here and there, uh, maybe run an actual hundred miler, not like the one where you have to stop every hour. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. We'll see. You know, there's a lot of things that kind of, interests me um that i'd like to get into um does, but, does ocr if you had to pick one which is a terrible yeah. question to ask, yeah. if you had to pick pure running and ultras or ocr would you be able to pick one i i would pick i would pick ultras i would you would i would i think i i still at this point in my life it's still something i just i really enjoy it maybe because i don't think i've recognized my full potential in it yet mm. um and I think that in obstacle racing, it's kind of like, okay, well, I've, I've been at the peak, but I don't feel like I've been able to show my potential in ultra running. So I think that that's what kind of why I have that like itch still, you know, it's like I had two years where I was supposed to run Western States and where I qualified and then both years I broke a bone. So it's kind of like that, okay, unfinished business type of thing. Um, so yeah, we'll see. It's just, it's so hard to know at this point. Um, but I, I honestly, as cliche as it is, any start line I get to is a great start line. So <laughs> kind of a good motto, motto to have. And, and you're yeah. going to commit if you can, if races resume, you'll be okay committing to a series. Uh, you know, I think it depending on how they set up the ultra series, I don't even know how they set this stuff up. Um, but I mean, it is going to be something. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> We're just going to make this up as we go along. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I almost did the Spartan games, but, um, <laughs> would have been, been disastrous for me. Um, but, uh, it's, uh, no, I think that, I mean, I would like to see what it is and then pick, you know, and I think they give enough options and yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it'd be fun just to have kind of a structure to the year. Um, I think I've kind of missed that, uh, for these past few years. I have one last racing question is that, yeah. and that is, 
Are your days of running running like anything less than like a half marathon over? Uh, unless it's Palmerton. (laughs) (laughs) Depends on how much vert is involved. If there's a lot of vert involved, I will definitely run a 10 K. Um, but yeah, I think the hardest thing I ever did was that Spartan trail 10 K in this past December. (laughs) I was like, I can't run this fast guys. (laughs) It was so painful. That was flat, right? Pretty flat. Oh, it was flat. It was maybe like 200 feet of vert and, you know, in a 10K. Um, it was basically a cross-country course. Yeah. So, yeah. but it was so, fun. So what is your, your perfect course then? If you had to design a race for you, what would the distance be and what would the terrain be like? Mm, uh, it would be 24 hours up and down Killington. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Grindy. Just grind. Just grind. I am a grinder. So I know you can power hike uphill with anyone yeah. in the game. Yeah. What yeah. would your descending be like against the women in the game right now? Um, it's getting better now that I've moved to Colorado because I actually have some technical stuff that I have to descend. Um, technical descending has always been tough for me in California. It's just like smooth buff trails and fire roads. Um, mm. So I don't know. I mean, I, th- I'm, I'm definitely lots more confident now Um and I descend much better off trail than I do yep. on trail, um, which is why I always descended so well in Spartan. I descended well when I ran the Barkley marathons because for some unknown reason, if there's no trail, I'll just bomb straight down it. But if there's a trail, I don't, I don't know. I start to hold back. I'm the same. <laughs> oh, good to know I'm not alone. But like, you know, those like, you know, those fields we would run down coming off of Killington that were just like, they were like waist high deep. You had no idea it was underneath you and your footing. It was just easy to open up and go. So yeah. who knows? It's less jarring, I think. So you can just do it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you're going to fall in each it occasionally here or there, but yeah. So do you have anyone supporting you these days? What's your, who do you want to thank? What kind of sponsors, What's family? Sponsor? What do you got going? What's my family? I'd like to thank my dog, Emmy. Uh, <laughs> she's the biggest you? fan. She's supporting me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, man, my, my biggest sponsor to this day is still uh beat elite. So they're, they're rocking it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, uh, I mean, I have a few where I run for ultimate direction out of day recovery, uh, my peanut butter supplier, which is actually <laughs> the best thing ever. If you've ever had big spoon roasters. Oh yeah. I have a, I have a peanut butter sponsor, big spoon roasters. Um, it's <laughs> like my favorite sponsor ever cause they make the best nut butter in the entire world. And I probably eat a jar every two or three days. So that's pretty incredible. <laughs> I remember you saying publicly, like you didn't, you, you weren't really, you didn't really care much for sponsors. You only wanted them maybe if, if they were truly a product you believed in, it wasn't mm-hmm. something you really chased. So obviously yeah. anybody sponsoring you, you really like, I would assume. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's kind of like how it's, you know, I parted ways with my shoe sponsor recently and cause it just wasn't working out. Um, but like, and cause for me, that's super important is that I need to like believe in the product and that's how I always, you know, and I'm not going to ever like, be with a sponsor unless it's something that I actually, you know, use and can legitimately mm-hmm. champion to everyone. So I am. Um, I do have one last question for you. Then. Yeah. Where did this pop tart thing start? Oh God. Ask Michael Morris um, from Spartan. Uh, yeah. It actually, it, it, this actually we're coming full circle 2013 Spartan race world championships. Yeah. Um, I was doing the Tyrolean traverse, which was over water at the time. Um, across the lake there. And um, I was, I think I was like 45 minutes ahead of the next woman. 
at that point. And Mike Morris yells at me. He goes, Amelia, what did you eat for breakfast? And I'm like, Pop-Tarts, because I actually did. And uh, it kind of stuck since then. So it's always been, I eat a Pop-Tart before every race. Um, and I mean, the superstition has worn off because I've had plenty of awful races in which I've eaten Pop-Tarts before. Um, but that's, uh, I still do it. <laughs> I just want you to know that there are probably, I'm going to say hundreds of people listening that have eaten Pop-Tarts before I run now because of you. Uh, yeah. so you, you deserve some sort of kickback or something. I know, you know, occasionally a random box of Pop-Tarts will show up on my doorstep from them. I think that's, that's all I need. So <laughs> what's your favorite flavor? Cinnamon roll. That's all I got. That's what I just the last burning question I had. There we go. That's, that's how you end it. <laughs> it's still one of my go-tos. I, I, I go with some more. Oh, that's more is good too. Some more yeah. is very good. Yeah. Some quick, yesterday. quick, quick, easy source of digest, easily digestible carbs. That's all you need. And they travel well. So yes, they do. If people want to get in touch with you, Amelia, um, where can they find you? Well, my personal phone number is, no, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> oh, dang. <laughs> not Joe DeSena. <laughs> oh God, I should have just like given Joe's email or something. <laughs> Spartan Race HQ at no. Um uh I am on Instagram at ARBoone11, Twitter at Amelia Boone. Um, and I have a website that I needs updating at ameliaboonracing.com. I've never asked you this. I think I've known you since yeah. 2013. Maybe 2012. Yeah. Yeah, yeah 2012. Yeah, because we met, I think, when you we both got second at the Ultra Beast that year. Yeah. What is the 11 in AR Boone? Oh, well, so that was my sports number growing up. Okay. Um, and by the, I got an Instagram late. And so by the time I got an Instagram, there was not a lot of options left. So I've wondered that a stupid number of times. <laughs> like, I know she's not a, a graduate of 11. Nope. Uh, nope. Yeah. Just, just my favorite number. And 11, 11 yesterday is like my favorite day. So, yeah. Okay. Well, yep. congratulations. Happy 11, 11, one day late. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Uh, Amelia, this has been a really good conversation. Appreciate yeah. you being open, and I think people are going to get a lot out of this. So thanks for your time. Yeah, no, thank you. It was good to catch up, and hope to uh, see you guys live and in person at a race in the near future. On the podium. On the podium. There we go. <laughs> That's right, baby. Thanks, Amelia. Bye, guys.